So this morning, uh, you can turn to Mark chapter 8. A different place to take you on a Easter Sunday, but this story has really stuck with me lately, and when I was asked to kind of fill in, I immediately thought of this one. <clears throat> Mark chapter 8. It is good to be back, uh, <laughs> but uh, we're officially back at Beacon. It's so good to be here and be part of the Beacon family again, and it's a blessing to teach you this morning, and in Mark 8, we have a really cool story, I think, um, a really interesting story, and in that, and if you ever wondered why Jesus came to the earth, why Jesus was incarnated at all, you have to simply go to Luke chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, but in Luke chapter 4, Jesus stands up in the synagogue, and he begins to speak, he opens the scroll, and lo and behold, he opens it to Isaiah chapter 61, and in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19, he reads, almost ex- he reads exactly from Isaiah 61. And he is basically saying, this is why I have come. This is why I'm here. This is my mission. It's effectively Jesus' mission statement. And there, if you remember that scene, he says that he's come to speak good news to the poor. And he's come to set the captives free and give sight to the blind and, and provide rest for all those who are oppressed. And really, throughout his ministry, Jesus was constantly uh, verifying these claims and sort of living up to that mission and establishing sort of the evidence that he was the Son of God. And in Mark 8, we have an explicit example of this when Jesus heals this blind man from Bethsaida. And, um, but despite this sort of miraculous event, despite the sort of uh, amazing nature of this scene where he performs this healing and gives this man his sight back, I think the motivations behind it are much more comprehensive than you might think. It's not just giving this guy his sight, changing this man's life. Jesus' point is much more broad than that. And in coming to Mark 8, we find a group of friends that bring a blind man into Jesus' presence. Look at verse 22. Let me flip over there for a second. Verse 22, it says, And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and he besought him to touch him. And so these men, they are very burdened by their friend's ailment. They're very burdened by what his state is, that he is blind. And they were burdened by this. And they were also aware of Jesus' reputation. No doubt Jesus had been on the earth for some time. And he was establishing himself as sort of this wonder worker. And so obviously they knew that he could perform miracles, even if they didn't know exactly what that meant. And Jesus noticed him, and he takes him by the hand, and he leads him out of the village, it says in verse 23. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the town. And when, they had, when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked if, it, if he saw aught. Verse 24, and he looked up, and he said, I see men as trees walking. And we must note a few things here before I want to press on, because... This event is only recorded in Mark's gospel. It's exclusive to this book. I think that's for a reason. You know, Mark's points, each of the gospel narratives, have a specific point. Matthew is showing that Jesus is the king of the Jews and that he has come. And that's why everything is sort of Jewish related. And it always is going back to the Old Testament because the Jews would be familiar with that book. So it's constantly referencing the Old Testament. Mark we know, is showing Jesus as the Son of Man. 
He's the servant. He has come and he has come to serve as the son of man. But the, also the second curious thing about this passage is that this is one of three miracles in Mark which is recorded and which is, happens in relative sort of privacy. And you notice he took him by the hand and he takes him out of the town, it says. And so really, you know, as always in these cases, there were disciples present. There was Jesus' disciples. But it, the really focus of this miracle is the sufferer and Christ, the Savior. And so practically speaking, going out of the village was done to sort of avoid more publicity, avoid more uproar and, and that would sort of ensue after a healing of this kind. Now, earlier in the same chapter, in, earlier in Mark, uh, the Pharisees had uh, clamored for signs. They want, give us a sign to show that you are the Son of God. And um, they have, and this is in verses 11 and 13, they sort of, they sort of say, give us a sign. We need another uh, uh, heaven-sent miracle to show us that you are the Son. And they had completely ignored the fact that in verses 1 through 10, Christ had literally just finished feeding the 4,000. Not the 5,000 that we often know, but this is the feeding of the 4,000 that he does with just a mere seven loaves. So these religious sort of experts, these experts on the law are still saying, that's not good enough. We need another sign. But their curiosity wasn't, too, wasn't genuine. They weren't, they weren't after more evidence that he was the Messiah. They, they, they really only sought to test him, as they often do. The Pharisees were continually testing Jesus and questioning his Messiahship. And Jesus, no doubt, is, is frustrated by their continued uh, unbelief, their continued blindness, you might say. And our text says in verse 12 that he sighed deeply in his spirit. I'm going to read that verse really quick. Uh, Mark 8:12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, There shall no sign be given unto this generation. I like how it explains Jesus' reaction. He sighed deeply in your spirit. And imagine that being just like, <sighs> like that. He's just frustrated. <laughs> they had missed the point again. And uh, we notice that after that, Jesus is basically like, okay, I'm out. And he goes and he sails across the Sea of Galilee. Right after that in verse 13. So I think by taking this guy outside of the town, he was not wanting to appease the Pharisees. Right? He, he doesn't want to give them another sign. So basically he's going to take them out of the way into some sort of exclusive place that only they knew about in order to not make a big deal about it. He didn't want to give this generation another sign. But this isn't the only curious thing. The, the third curious thing is, well, did you notice it? Let, let, let me read verses 23 through 25 again says, And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. And after that, he put his hands upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. What did you notice about those verses? What, was, what stood out to you? He didn't heal them all the way the first time. Exactly. Yeah, it, this is the only miracle uh, that I know of that is recorded that's not immediate. It's not instantaneous that Jesus gives this guy his sight back. Jesus lays his hands on the man twice, restoring his sight gradually, not immediately. And why does he do this? Why do you think he does this? 
Anybody have any ideas? It's curious, right? It doesn't make sense. Some commentators have suggested that maybe, uh, maybe his friends lacked faith or something like that. That maybe there was a seeming lack of faith on the part of either the blind man himself or his friends. And so Jesus does this to sort of um, prove that they need to have more faith. But I, I think that idea is kind of uh, not why this is there. I, I think that idea, the idea that Jesus would pin the hopes of restoration on the measure of their faith seems very unlikely. And I think also goes to show that it, it, it's ignoring what has just happened. You know, we've just seen Jesus's, Jesus be sovereign over food, over everything. He can do whatever he wants. And so it's not about their quote-unquote faith. Putting the, the burden of this healing... On either the supporters, the friends, or this very sufferer is, is merely uh, us sort of uh, putting ourselves in the text again. Meaning that we are saying, oh, it's up to us, right? We're putting the burden of faith on us again. And it's removing Christ from the center. I would say that there's a much more important point that Jesus is making. Not only for uh, his disciples, but for us. And I would say that this miracle is much more inclusive Yes, it's, it's, it's performed in privacy and exclusivity, but it's very inclusive miracle despite being conducted that way. And Christ is making a specific point to this man to make an important point to his disciples and to us. And I would even hasten to say that giving this man his sight back, that healing this blind man was sort of secondary it wasn't the main point. It's a cursory point. It's just like he healed this man. The real point that Jesus is trying to show is, is well, let me, let, me, let me explain it to you. As we've seen um, already that Jesus has just performed a miracle, feeding over 4,000 pe people with seven loaves of bread. But this, as we saw, this miracle wasn't enough. And in verse 11, they demand, they say, a sign from heaven. The Pharisees, they, we need a sign from heaven. You feeding 4,000 people with seven pieces of bread, that's not enough for us. We need a sign from heaven. And so Jesus, as we know, was frustrated by their own religiosity, their own frustrating belief in themselves. And so he leaves the Pharisees and denies them their sign in verses 12 and 13. That's where we see he gathers the disciples and they start sailing across the Sea of Galilee. And so while they're in this boat, Jesus then takes this moment to sort of teach his disciples once again. Teach them an important lesson about the Pharisees in their false religion. In verse 14, it says this. And now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. So he's making a point, point here to say that... Um, that their religion is false. What they are promoting and what they are preaching in this world is false. It's not the gospel. And I say that he is trying to teach this because the disciples, you know, they, we have a lofty view of these Bible characters at times, you know, in our old Sunday school classes that we are always... You know, say, uh, dare to be a Daniel and all these other things that we are supposed to look up to these Bible characters. But they're no better than you and I. You know that, right? They're, they're just men. They're not super amazing spiritual guys. 
These were carpenters and tax collectors and fishermen. I, this, this group of guys, this 12 group of men, were, was much more frat house than intellectual club. I'm sure they cursed. I'm sure they said things that were crass. And Jesus was probably always scolding them about one thing or another. These were guys. They were dudes. And, they, and we need to get rid of our sort of lofty expectations. Especially here because uh, Jesus is insistent on not letting this moment pass without teaching them something. He warns them of something. And he's, and he's, and he's saying um, the caution here in, from verse 15 is one against our, our natural tendency to be self-centered and self-reliant. Just like the Herod, the, the, that leaven that is almost like Jesus saying that's the poison of the poison of the Pharisees and Herod is to be self-centered, self-reliant, self-saviors. And he's saying, take heed, watch out, beware of this false religion. And, and <laughs> these guys, <laughs> these rough guys, what are they worried about? Look at verse 16. Jesus is teaching them, and, he, and it says, they reasoned among themselves, saying, it is because we have no bread. <laughs> so Jesus is in teaching them in a, an important point about the eternal gospel, the glorious truth of religion. And what are they concerned about? They're concerned about their bellies. That they only, as it said in verse 14, they're only going to have one loaf. How are we going to feed 12 guys with one loaf? <laughs> it's like they had just forgotten what he had just did with seven loaves. And so Jesus is, I, I imagine this scene being another point where Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. <laughs> that Jesus is once again like, ah, guys, are you not getting it? <laughs> and he even says that in verse 21, he basically, he's saying, how is it that you don't understand? How are you not getting it? <laughs> I'm trying to give you little hints. I'm trying to teach you certain ways and you're just not getting it. And he's patient once again in verses 17 and 20 through 20. He, he reminds them of what they had just seen, what they had just witnessed. And again, he says, how is it that you don't Understand? How do you not get it? And imagine the faces of these disciples sort of being like deer in the headlights. Sort of like, whoa, like why are you so serious, Jesus? It's just bread and we got to eat, right? And so I imagine that Jesus is saying now, how is it that you don't understand? Are you so blind? And so with that, in mind. That's when we come to verse 22 and verse 23 and then following where he heals this blind man. It's with that knowledge that we come to this scene, you see that Jesus leads this man outside the city to illustrate an important point for his disciples and for us. And by performing this miracle, Christ, he wasn't out for fame. He wasn't out for popularity. He wasn't out for notoriety. He wasn't out for uh, bringing more uh, adulation upon himself. He was showing us who he is. He was showing us that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he was showing us who he's for, going back to Luke 4. He is for the blind and for the poor and for the oppressed. He's basically saying, I'm for you. You who are blind, you who are poor, you who are oppressed by the religion of the world. You see, throughout the Bible, sight is really a, a sort of a metaphor in, uh, for understanding. 
It's often used as those who don't understand they are blind. And so those who are without sight are without comprehension. And so it is we, we can see that this blind man is a good rep- representation of the disciples themselves. They didn't see Jesus for who he was. Just as this man was without sight, the disciples were without understanding. Like this man, the disciples had been given the good news. They had been with Jesus. They had been taught by Jesus personally. And they still didn't get it. They still didn't uh, understand who he was. They still, we might say, lacked clear vision. And just as this man saw men as trees walking, as it says in verse 24, the apostles saw Christ but vaguely. They didn't see the full picture of who Jesus was. They didn't see him in all his glorious color. They'd been given a glimpse of him. They'd been given a, a little sneak peek at what Jesus could do with his miracles and all the amazing events that they had seen firsthand. But they still didn't understand who he was or what he had come to do. And by this man, by healing this man, he's saying, you are blind. And just as this man wasn't able to see clearly after Jesus' first touch, the disciples still didn't get it. They didn't understand. They were still operating under an inbred system of works and effort, the poison of the Pharisees, a system which, when left alone and apart from the invasion of the grace of God, will always trump faith. Works were always trump faith because we are works-driven people. And so you see that Jesus isn't necessarily concerned about the blindness of this man from Bethsaida. He is concerned about the blindness of the apostles' hearts. That they didn't see him for who he was. And like the Pharisees, they were attracted to miracles and healings and amazing signs sent from heaven. Instead of being absorbed and consumed by Jesus the Savior. And in fact... All that Jesus does in these verses here is really answer his own question. He asked a question in verse 21. How is it that you don't understand? It's basically as if he had said, here, come on, I'll show you what I mean. I'll show you what I'm talking about. The disciples should have seen this man for themselves. They should have seen this man as their sort of spiritual representative. And in that moment, he, he pictured their inability to comprehend Christ's words and works, the f- true Christ's words and works. But the blurred vision of this blind man not only pictures their incomplete view of the disciples had of Christ, it also points to our weakness, our weakened conceptions of who God is himself. You see, Jesus' point is to manifest himself as the Christ. Not a Christ, not another uh, amazing prophet, not just another man, not just another teacher, not just some humanitarian who thrives on healing and helping the helpless. He is the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the Christ. He is God in the flesh. He is God come down. Or as it says in John 1, he is the word among us. Or as it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, he is the grace that comes to you. That's who he is. Or as one writer says, the gospel not merely presents itself to you, but it comes to you. 
It does not ask you to meet it halfway. It meets you all the way. It is not a voice which speaks to you from afar, but one which comes to you to your very ear and to your very heart. It comes to you. That's what Jesus is saying. I am God coming to you. This is completely opposite from every other single religion in the whole world, in the whole history of humankind. All other religions are man climbing up to God and being like gods. Christianity is the only religion where God comes down, where grace comes to you and seeks you out. And we know that this is the point that Jesus is making by glancing at the very next scene. In verses 26 and following at the end of the chapter, this is where we get that great scene where Jesus asks his disciples, Who do men say that I am? And eventually, it's a leading question. They say not to ask leading questions, but Jesus does. And he's after a certain answer. And he finally gets it from Peter when Peter says in verse 29, Thou art the Christ. He's saying, yes, exactly. That's what I wanted you to see. I am the Christ. I'm the promised one of Israel. I'm the one that it talked about in Isaiah 61. The guy who was supposed to come to preach good news to the captives and heal the blind and relieve the poor from their poverty. He's the divinely sent rescuer that that liberates us from the chains of sin. He's the true and better Isaac, the son who was actually offered up by the father and who actually died and who actually spilled his blood for the atonement of the world. That's who he is. That's who he's saying he is. And our text says that after Jesus touched this man the second time, he put his hands upon his eyes and he made him look up and he was restored and saw every man clearly. And that's what he was trying to get a point across to his disciples. You see, you're like this blind man, but I am the Christ. See me for who I am, the one who would have to live and die and rise again. That's what he goes on to talk about, and that's what we're celebrating today. The one who would rise again from the grave, conquering sin, death, and hell. Seeing Jesus clearly is seeing him for who he is, a God who is full of grace and truth, a God who is not afraid to get his hands dirty and deliver his beloved delinquents, you and I. A God who is also not ashamed to die for those who are already dead so that they might live. See, that's what he does. The life becomes death so that the dead might have life. The living one becomes the dead one so that we might rise from the grave ourselves. His resurrection is your resurrection. Just as his crucifixion is yours. That's what Paul was making the point in the first and second Adam that he talks about throughout Romans. That his crucifixion is your crucifixion. And his resurrection is yours. And if you believe in him, all that is Christ is yours. We are not, we are the brothers of Christ, the sisters of Christ. We were made sons and daughters of the Father, just like He is. That's why we, the angels marvel at the gospel, because the gospel makes sinners to be the sons and daughters of God. They marvel at the fact that God would come down and lower Himself into human flesh and bleed and die for us, for sinners, for people who hated Him, 
for people who spat on him and killed him and put him on a cross. And as Jesus was saying that, he says, Father, forgive them for they know that what they do. Even as he was dying and bleeding, he was thinking of you. He was making a way for you to have hope once again. All of that is what Jesus was trying to get them to see. He's trying to say, this is the point. This is why I have come. I have come to die that the dead might have life. That's why in the, in the next scene, we, want, we can't get into it, but that's why when, when Peter sort of says, you, you can't die, and then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It's because he's saying that this is the point. You are missing the point still. If you believe that I don't have to die, then you, then you are therefore saying that you can get into heaven by yourself. But I'm saying to you that this is the point I'm here. I'm here to die and live again and bring you with me. (laughs) He's seeing Jesus clearly. This is what Jesus would have us see. This is what Jesus would have us believe. Let's pray.